0: hey hey what's going on man i
1: don't know (laughs) hi i'm trying to start to the show i planned that out perfectly uh (laughs) hi pete you're pete i'm scott this is the end of the empire that's a cool name for show oh i got my volume up way too high in here how's that is that a little better yeah how's things going man doing good man
0: i'm just putting this out on twitter and a couple other places
1: Okay, that's good. So they can
0: see they can see that we are live now. Yeah.
1: So there's. And, um,
0: hey, there was something we didn't talk about last week that um is a real I mean something really to be celebrated. The name of this podcast and the uh, and the art was recommended. The name was recommended and the art was done by someone who goes by Neocon Remover on uh, on Twitter. And yeah, is he still on there or he got removed? He's on there. Um,
1: oh, really? You know what? I Did he like get temporarily removed and he, I had to recall so him or something?
0: Sometimes he shuts his account off and stuff oh, like okay. that. Um, yeah, you just have to check. But I mean, I'll have to look into that again. This is just one of the I'll coolest things I've ever seen. So <laughs> he told me the whole story. I don't think he wants me to give details, but this wasn't at a gun range. It was somewhere else. Some dude was just messing around with a shotgun and showing what a Barney badass he was, Mm -hmm. and it went off and it got his wife right behind the knee. I saw that and yeah, and he asked me so that he wouldn't have to get doxxed and give his real name if I'd set up a GoFundMe for him and everything. And he's yeah, he only asked, he said, she needs ten thousand dollars to get through. She's not working. Um, you know, I'm working from home, so I'm going to probably be making less money. And within fifteen hours, it was completely funded just yeah. from Twitter. Yeah, I felt it, bad it was, about
1: that too because I, I, uh, I guess I logged into Skype. Maybe I had Skype off for a couple of days or something. I opened Skype and saw your note, and I went and retweeted it. And then I, after I retweeted it, I went and followed the link, and it was already over. I was like, oh, people are well, still you people are, care still, of it,
0: man well people still have the ability and people still are donating so cool. you know, if i did too yeah it, it turns out that um i mean she's in a lot of pain man and she she's suffering so
1: like big time surgery to reconstruct everything
0: yeah it's going to be i mean a, a lot of those pellets it was bird shot so you know mm-hmm. you had a lot of pellets and a lot of those pellets are still in there so I mean, it, a Neocon it's going to
1: punch the other guy in the head a bunch of times or what? Oh,
0: I'll, 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 I'll tell you the story off air. I'm sure he does not want this story told on air, but no, he didn't hurt... He
1: punched that other guy a lot of times. Well, I'll,
0: I'll tell you. Um, OK, man. so, yeah, I know. But I just wanted to thank everybody who donated money because that was so cool. It just really shows that this community can come together and make things happen if we yeah, need man. to.
1: Yeah, that is really great. And so, sorry to her if you're watching yeah. this, lady. I'm really sorry about that happening. That's crazy. Uh, so yeah, I before, saw another one today where what, the guys did. Usually it's a kid shoots a kid. This time the toddler shot his own father. I was like, you know, guys, it's wonderful to have guns. They're better than peanut butter. They're the greatest thing ever. But try to keep them where your toddlers can't get them. Is that too much to ask for people to be responsible with? How they treat these things, you know. How could how could you even be pointing the barrel of your weapon at some guy's wife's knee? It shouldn't right? Like, how does that even happen? How no. is her knee I
0: mean, at, was, on the other
1: end of where it, your gun's pointed right now? You know?
0: It just goes somebody who Baldwin.
1: doesn't know what the hell they're doing.
0: Um before we before we even started, Casey Johnson over here gave us a $20 super chat. And he said, um, Scott, you're the man Pete. No offense. I'm good. Um, I hope you two covered Dr. Peter, whoever the fuck on Joe Rogan experience, three hours of hysteria, killing by someone with an angel voice. Keep up the good work. Both of you.
1: Um, All I saw was the one short clip of him saying, you know, they discouraged treatments in order to push the vaccine, which I thought was pretty clear all along.
0: Yeah. 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 Not Um, that.
1: Not that I, I'm I, saying hydroxychloroquine works, but just that they didn't want to know whether it worked or not, or whether they could figure out something to mix it with to make it work or any kind of thing. They just didn't, you know, that's pretty obvious all along, I think. But yeah. Yeah, it it was
0: three hours of there was nothing there that I hadn't heard before, but it definitely was against pretty much every corporate narrative that has come out in the last two years. And, um, yeah, it was just shocking to see it on the biggest podcast in the world.
1: Yeah. You know, I guess I see the news stories hitting and missing here and there about California, this and New York city, that, but there hadn't been anything like real restrictions in Texas in a very long time. Other than, I guess, you know, they close like very large indoor gatherings, like, uh, concerts and stuff like that was Mm -hmm. i guess the the thing that lasted the longest which is bad but otherwise you wouldn't know that any of that hysteria is still going on here but i guess i don't really you know keep a list in my head of all the places where it's still the spring of 2020 as far as their local governments are concerned and the way they're treating this thing
0: and i guess new york
1: city is the the worst of all of those
0: New York is definitely the one that um, everybody's pointing to. I mean, there are people getting arrested for trying to go into places, things like that. So, yeah. um,
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's pretty crazy. I Again, I don't know what else to say except the first thing that comes to my mind is I'm predicting a massive swing to the right over this. You cannot expect Americans to put up with this for very long. Not that the Republicans have a very strong narrative at all of you know being the opposite of that which how dumb could they be that that's not the their program you know they complain about fauci or whatever but they don't say we will liberate you from the democratic tyranny you know they don't talk about that at all yeah in that frame it in that way but i think they're gonna win because of this stuff despite themselves because just the democrats are clearly so much worse and just so intent on foisting this on people in a way that's just so far beyond reasonable. It's crazy. You know?
0: Yeah. Next year's next year's uh, elections um, without any shenanigans should be a red slaughter. Yeah. Yeah. It just seems like that's the way it's going to be.
1: But I mean, then again, never underestimate the Republicans capability to shoot themselves in both feet and the stomach, you know, yeah, they're, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs) they're terrible. Absolutely terrible.
1: So yes. So speaking of which, and this was uh, one of the, and we got, um, we should have announced we got um, Jonathan Newman from Mises is coming on. I have his new book, but I haven't looked at it yet, but I want to, I can't wait to talk with him about it here. So we're going to do some economics here in a few. I just
0: I just talked with them about it yesterday. We were talking about oh, really? um, we did an episode on John Randolph of Roanoke. And oh, cool. um, you know, just, Listen, like, I'm just kind of going to the... shut up
1: and let you guys handle it, man, for the second half hour here. Yeah, but, we, were um... to, we that was that was a lot of fun, because
0: if you look at John Randolph of Roanoke, you can see like a, a proto libertarian. And uh, yeah, it was a, that that was a lot of fun.
1: Well, you know, I read the first half of the first volume of Conceived in Liberty by Murray Rothbard before I eventually had to put it down in favor of something else. But that is the story of early America. There's a lot of proto-libertarianism going going around along there. You know, I learned a lot of my libertarianism from reading about them and and that generation long before I ever heard of, you know, any of our modern day libertarian leaders at all, you know, but um, as as most Americans did. before they forgot it anyway. Um, But, oh, I was going to say segue from the horribleness of the Republicans that um, the uh, chairman of the National Republican Party tweeted out that Biden is weak and is appeasing the evil Vladimir Putin. And unlike the tough guy, Donald Trump, who'd face him down. So I, you know. I wrote a little tweet about how, no, man, the narrative is supposed to be that the crisis is all the Democrats fault and the Republicans want to <laughs> be friends with everybody because we believe in America first. Now, remember that America first, you know, um, but so they are very horrible. And um, the uh, the Republicans are their instincts are horrible. In fact, Donald Trump, Mr. America first himself, put out a message this week, an email message saying that Trump is weak. And cause, I mean, uh, pardon me, that Biden is weak and caused this problem through his weakness uh, in the face of Putin, who he was strong against and whatever. So, you know, they can't figure out another way to approach it other than Republicans, tough guys, Democrats, weaklings, because that's just easy um, and they're easy. But so the good news, though, is that Biden has backed down and on the big issues of uh You know, the possibility of bringing Ukraine into NATO or sending American troops to intervene in a possible war there, that he said that will not happen. Neither of those things will happen. And, you know, he said for the next 10 years, we won't bring them into NATO, which is indefinitely anyway. Um, So that's the good news. Of course, you know, it's the Americans who precipitated this crisis without even going back to the coup of 2014. But just since Biden came into office, he's been, you know, trying to really reinitiate the Cold War in a way that Trump did in practice, but without the theoretical framework for it all, right? But Biden is saying it's the democracies versus the autocracies, which is just a total lie, right? America flanked by all royal families on all (laughs) sides, military dictators and el presidentes and potentates from around the world, sultans and emirs and sheikhs and whatever you got uh, anything but democracies. But anyway, no, it's us in the democracies versus the autocracies, Russia and China. And they've been, uh, you know, escalating bomber flights and naval missions in the Baltic and black seas, especially. And they've been sending more arms to Ukraine more than Trump did, which is primarily Lockheed javelin, uh, javelin missiles, uh, which are anti, you know, handheld anti-tank missiles. Um, And they're, I guess, arguing about whether to give them stingers or not, anti-aircraft missiles like they gave the Mujahideen in the 80s uh, to take out the Russian helicopters. So, um, you know, that was really what. Oh, and I guess uh, there's this great piece that we ran yesterday, Pete, or two days ago on Antiwar.com by uh, James Webb uh, Jr. Or James R. Webb, uh, the son of the former senator who himself is a veteran and Mm -hmm. very knowledgeable about this stuff. And uh, he wrote a piece about how the Russians are not likely to invade Ukraine right now. But he's describing the buildup. The Washington Post originally claimed 175,000 Russian troops were building up on the other side of the border. They've now, uh, you know, lowered that down to about 120,000. But he quotes experts there saying that essentially this was a deterrent. They were never threatening to invade they were threatening that Kiev better not restart up the war against the separatist provinces in the east, and so you know what they are doing as a deterrent. The Americans are spinning as an attempted, you know, a, pr- a preparation for an invasion. And you know, I talked with uh, Dave DeCamp, our news editor at Antiwar.com, mm-hmm. about this, and he had written about how the um, the Americans said, "Oh no, the Russians are going to invade." The Washington Post kicked this all off at the beginning of November. The Russians are going to invade with 175,000 guys. And the Ukrainians were like, what? No, they're not. What are you talking about? And then the Americans like hit him with the elbow and said, yes, they are too. That's the narrative. Go along with it, you know, kind of thing. And then the Ukraine said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. We also are terrified that the Russians are about to invade when it was clearly not what was going on there. So, um, uh, but anyway, I mean, the good news there is that Biden backed down on bringing him into NATO, but he's still sending arms, although mostly, you know, relatively light arms. Uh, but so it's still a provocation. But so the headline on antiwar.com today is that Putin has uh, proposed negotiations and issued a written set of proposals for agreements to to resolve the issue. So um, the, the news story at antiwar.com said they hadn't uh, published exactly what all the details were of what the proposals were, but it's presumably, you know, you promise to um, uh, not try to bring Ukraine into NATO, and then we'll promise to work with the Donbass region to make them cooperate with Kiev as long as Kiev wants to go along with their agreement for the strong federalism for the eastern regions, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, like that, you know, along those lines. But it's been proposed for a very long time that the West treat. Ukraine as they treated Austria and Finland in the cold war which is just neutral just leave them out of it you know they're stuck right in the middle and it makes no sense for them to choose one side or the other and make enemies of the other and just let them be neutral and leave it alone um and so you know I always like to refer to this Pete and I think it's really important that people look at this it's now a word from X by the evil Thomas Friedman in the New York Times it's from 1998 And he's interviewing George Kennan, who was the grayest of gray beard foreign policy uh, guys from after World War II, who originally essentially coined the containment policy, originated the containment policy against the Soviet Union with his article on the sources of Soviet conduct in foreign affairs in 1946. And so this is the 1990s, and he's just stomping his feet, mad as hell, you know, uh, going off to Thomas Friedman about how irresponsible it is for Bill Clinton and the Senate to go along with this proposal to expand Ukraine, uh, pardon me, to expand NATO into Eastern Europe, despite their promises. And he said, everyone is saying now that if we do this, it's no problem because it's not aimed at the Russians anymore. The Russians are our friends. We're just trying to spread stability and rules based order and drinking buddies to include new countries, but it's all good, man. And you say that now, but then when you get the Russian reaction, you'll say, see, that's why we have to do this, because of the aggression of the Russians. But that's just not right. That's the reaction, and that's what I'm telling you is going to happen right now, says George Kennan in 1998. So that's exactly what we're dealing with now, is America not just bringing Poland and Hungary into the NATO alliance, but the Baltic States already, and, and <clears throat> they perpetually threatened to bring in Georgia and Ukraine, which is like Russia threatening to bring Canada and Mexico into the Warsaw Pact. We absolutely would never stand for that in a million years. And then, but we expect the supposed psychopathic madman autocrat Vladimir Putin to just sit there and take it. But what do we owe the Ukrainians? Nothing, right? Like what, what, I mean, that's, first of all, nothing. But then what interest of ours are they? Nothing. Unless somehow you have a plan to gangsterize them out of their wheat fields and turn all that over to Archer Daniels Midland or something. But Pete, Archer Daniels Midland is not the United States of America. That's just some Americans. In fact, a very few of them. And if they have something at stake there, some oil companies or some, uh, you know, agribusiness concerns have business there that doesn't equate to the national interest of the United States of America and certainly um, not enough to get in a conflict with Russia over trying to bring them over to the West. And really what it is, is it's not even about any alleged benefit to the West. It's about sticking it to the Russians. It's about trying to figure out a way to take their naval base at Crimea away, which just backfired on them. Because when they overthrew the government there for the second time in 10 years, the Russians said enough of this and went ahead and took the entire damn peninsula so that they wouldn't have to worry about getting kicked out of their base on it. So, you know, bluff already called, you know, why are we still dealing with this? And I'll have the clip here uh, pretty soon tonight, I think, um, of when I was on the Kennedy show last night, I had the chance to say it's in the Victoria Newland phone call that. (sighs) She says she was contacted by Jake Sullivan, who was that time vice president Biden's national security advisor. And he said, Biden is on board to do a conference call to give the coup plotters an attaboy and help the deets to stick, she says. So our current president was then the vice president holding the Ukraine brief in the Obama government and who was instrumentally involved in plotting the coup that overthrew the government in 2014. So. Him climbing down now is him only solving a problem that he helped to create in the first place. Remember, the reason I wish I'd had time to say all this on Kennedy's show, the reason that his boy Hunter, the crackhead, got the job at the oil company was because that oil company had been tight with the previous government that the father Biden had overthrown. So this oil company said, oh, no, we might be in big trouble with the new regime. So in order to ingratiate ourselves with the new regime, we'll hire who? The son of the new prime minister? No. The son of the American vice president. To ingratiate themselves with the new regime, since the Americans were the ones who had created it. Um, So that was the key to that. So anyway, uh, it's picking a fight we shouldn't be in whatsoever. But, you know, luckily, Biden is not as tough as he thinks, you know, at night as he thinks he is in the morning or whatever. So he tends to back down and not follow through with the worst things uh, that he could be doing. Um, But uh, there was one more thing I wanted to say about that. I think I wrote it down. Oh, yes. Two more things I wanted to say about that, Pete. The first one is Colonel Douglas McGregor. I think we talked about this last time, maybe, had written this thing in the American Conservative about Pearl Harbor and saying, you call it deterrence, but you're deterring right up in somebody's nose in a way that it really amounts to aggression. And they're liable to knock your block off rather than be deterred. They're liable to go ahead and hit you first. And that that's the situation we're putting ourselves in, in Taiwan and in Ukraine, and that that's what we should not be doing. This is a guy who knows a thing or two about war. Okay, and he he's a tough guy. He's also the smartest guy in the room. Colonel McGregor is. He's really uh, an impressive character. And but so then he wrote this other one for the national interest where he says America would lose a war in Ukraine. And he goes through and names the numbers of how many combat brigades the Russians have, how many men, how many rockets, how powerful those rockets are what kind of anti-aircraft they have what kind of you know anti-armor what kind of infantry power they can array how they're likely to invade they'll go from here to here they'll take from this river to that river in this amount of time and this is a guy who has studied this and in fact you know practiced fighting them in this region of Europe um and says don't do it can't do it there's nothing that that is to be gained about this you know from this we would just lose And so we should not be bluffing. In fact, there's a great piece. um, Who wrote it? I'm sorry. I forget right now. It's on the, it's the spotlight. Oops. It's a spotlight on antiwar.com today. Is, um, oh, it's Andrew Coburn. Ghosts of Georgia 2008 should be haunting Kiev right now. So that's the one where in August 2008, uh, Mikhail Shakashvili believed that George W. Bush would back him up and invaded South Ossetia there uh, next to the Caspian Sea uh, in the Caucasus Mountains. And America did not come to his rescue when the Russians came across the mountains and beat their ass and kicked them back out of South Ossetia again. And um, so Andrew Coburn is saying, hey, Ukraine, you ought to be paying attention to that. You know, the Americans encouraged the uprisings in Hungary and the Czech Republic, too. And then they sat back and did nothing as the Soviets crushed them, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, ask the Kurds in Iraq, especially, but also in Syria and in Turkey, how many times they've been betrayed by the United States where you back them for a little while and then back their enemies against them or turn them over to their tender mercies or what, however it works, you know? Um, Americans have no desire whatsoever to die in a war with Russia over Ukraine. Now, maybe there's a few kooks in Washington, D.C., but at the end of the day, is that really enough to get us into a war over it? Nah, there's just no support whatsoever for this kind of thing, other than in the halls of power. And, you know, surprisingly, there have been some right-wing commentators who've been saying some pretty good stuff about this. Tucker Carlson, of course, uh, not surprisingly, had a great bit on uh, TV, or two, last week, including an interview with McGregor about it. Um, But that guy, Kurt Schlichter, who I don't know too much about him, but all I know of him is as a war hawk. And he wrote a piece that someone quoted and wrote on Twitter that, God, this guy sounds like Scott Horton four or five times in this article and what he says about why it's just not worth it to the American people to risk ourselves over Ukraine. And, you know, they really act like they don't know the Russians got thousands of nukes. So let me just stipulate. They've got thousands of nukes, thermonukes one of which destroy your entire city, kill all of you. So um, that's a war we can never fight. And they seem to think that this is, I, I know I'm redundant, but it's a good point. Gareth Porter's book about Vietnam is called The Perils of Dominance. And it's about how the reason we got into that war is because the American government, they knew that they were so much more powerful than Russia and China combined, that they said, we can just do whatever we want. They were telling the American people that we were supposed to be terrified, but they knew that they had so many more missiles and so many more nukes and so many more combat brigades and so many more ships and so much more everything. And they just thought, yeah, we can, Vietnam should be easy, right? What could possibly stop us when it's us versus these twerps, you know? But then of course that kind of dominance actually just leads to hubris and self, you know, inflicted wounds, if not total self-destruction which is, of course, the story of Vietnam that they got, you know, knee deep in the big muddy, as the song goes and wouldn't turn around. So um, and then the one more thing was Ray McGovern has a piece today about uh, President Xi said we have more than an alliance with the Russians, which Ray McGovern points out. Well, the New York Times hastens to add add that they do not have a formal alliance, but eh, maybe they don't need one they seem to be working very closely together, uh, to balance against the Americans. They've announced they have their new alternative to the swift international financial network that they're working on to protect themselves from American sanctions and all of that. So, um, you know, uh, um, I don't know what that amounts to. I mean, I hope it amounts to a checkmate in a way that the Americans realize that what the hell are they going to do about it? They're not in a position to do anything about it. And the rest of the world doesn't believe them when they want to rally the rest of the world against them. Again, the, the democracy summit they held the other day, that thing is a joke. You know, the Americans soaking in blood, holding hands with the Saudi king. Talking about the democracy alliance against the forces of darkness? you got to be kidding me. Nobody takes that seriously. Nobody in the world.
0: We got a question here in the super chat from Polaris589. He says, uh, what's the likelihood that the neocons will be re- run out of the GOP in the near future? I think most of them are gone at this point, aren't they?
1: Well, you know, Bill Crystal and a few have gone... Well, you know, like Richard Pearl was always a card-carrying Democrat. I don't think he ever, you know, some of these guys always were. Um, you know, I like Max Boot, people like that. I'm not sure. Charles Krauthammer's dead. I'm not sure he counts as a real actual neoconservative in the Republican Party anymore. There must be a few. I mean, but the problem is that just plain old Republican hawks are impressed by neoconservative arguments all the time you know what i mean everything is the fallacy of 38 as justin logan put it where everyone is neville chamberlain trying to appease everyone else who's adolf hitler and it's the only way to look at any negotiation that ever took place and so you know you don't talk to evil you fight it blah 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 and right-wingers love that kind of crap you know and You know, man, um, there's that great clip from the movie JFK where Donald Sutherland is explaining like what it's all about. Mr. X Fletcher Prouty. He says, look, the organizing principle of any society is the war power, you know, who has the ability to organize us together and make us all go fight together. You know what I mean? That's essentially what it's all about. And so You could argue it's a pretty primal thing, especially among people who don't really have an argument about how, you know, civilization and and the desire to have one should be against that. You know what I mean? But who just relish it? They're like, yeah, let's fight. If the enemy is not Saddam Hussein, then it must be the Ayatollah. And if it's not the Ayatollah, then it must be Vladimir Putin. And if it ain't Vladimir Putin, then it must be Chairman Xi. And if it ain't him, then it's Gaddafi. Oh, we already killed Gaddafi. Well, must be somebody then. we got to go after somebody because somebody out there is bad. Somebody out there. I was talking with a friend of mine this morning. He said his auntie was worried that the Russians are coming here. They're going to invade and take over America like Red Dawn. They're massing, she said, at the border. And he goes, auntie, what border? The border of Ukraine. 7,000 miles east of here, you know. Um, Well, it could happen, she said. No, it could not happen. Anti. Like they could nuke your city, but no, they could not take over our country from any direction. But it's fun to be afraid and, and TV will make it seem as though you really are in danger, you know, Um, and people like that kind of fear. It's like going to see a horror movie on the Friday night, you know, on date night. So, you know. I, I shouldn't be giving advice to the war party here, but I guess I'm just saying it's pretty easy for them to get people excited and get people afraid of things that could never be, you know? Hey, oh, Patrick. All right. Got him. Yeah, I'm right here. All right. Welcome, Patrick. How are you doing? Good. How about yourself? Doing great. Got Pete here, too. I got your book. What the hell did I do with it? It's on the pile. Okay.
0: Uh, All right. But I
1: haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I'm aware that Pete is much more familiar than me. So I'm going to shut up and back out of the way and let you guys talk <laughs> here for a little while.
0: Well, he and I have already done two episodes on certain sections of the book. Um, One What's of the, the things. Title?
1: Where is it? I have it here somewhere.
0: Oh. It's called Cronyism
2: Liberty versus Power in Early America, 16- right 1607, 1849.
1: Right there. Yeah. Great. Great. What do I? Oh, here it is. Aha. See, I get to show it too. Uh, all right. All yeah. right. That's the proof. Thanks. I'm not lying. I have it. Yeah. It's all it's that matters, right? 1607 through yeah. 1849. You said that part too fast. That is so interesting.
2: Yeah. Liberty oh,
1: versus power in America. Okay. So now you guys talk about it. Go ahead. All
0: right. Well, the funny thing is, I, one of the things I said as, uh, I think after we stopped recording yesterday was, Patrick Newman's like the reverse Tom Woods. Like Tom Woods is this guy with a PhD in history who's really well known for economics, and Patrick's like a, a PhD in economics who's getting well known as a historian, and it's it, it's pretty wild.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, thanks. I mean, it's it's uh, it, it's it's a nice compliment. Um, I yeah, I, it is kind of funny. I never thought of it uh, like that. I was always someone who's very interested, uh, inspired by Tom Woods. I had grown up reading all of his books and. I was on his podcast early on initially. And yeah, it's it's, it's cool to be compared to him. So uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a nice compliment. And I'm definitely moving more into history, but I think there's a lot there,
0: uh, a, a lot of things to talk about, particularly the subject of cronyism. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you on about is because everyone's hearing about inflation. Um, yeah. the, the regime says inflation's good. Uh, You're you're hearing that from it seems like all of the corporate press got their talking points on that one. Uh, But why do we have inflation right now? And maybe you can just give a primer on what's going on right now. Um, Even Biden says prices are going up, but it's not a bad thing. So why are prices going up? I guess that's something that affects everyone.
2: Okay. yeah, this is this is a subject I've also uh, spent a lot of time on especially yeah. as an economist. Why are prices going up? Uh, is it because of capitalist greed? Uh, that's what you know. Senator Elizabeth Warren would have us believe. Is it because of you know, transitory supply shocks? That's what many leading officials in the economy would have us believe. There's decrease in the supply of goods, and these will go away. Is it due to an increase in the money supply? Right. That's what a lot of people, Austrians such as myself, And many others have increasingly been arguing in reality, inflation is really due to the government completely misunderstood the severity of its lockdowns and locking people down, uh, incentivizing people to stay home through unemployment benefits, through stimulus checks, uh, discouraging people from working because of vaccine mandates, uh, the rent moratorium, etc. That's caused a lot of workers to remain off on the sidelines or to just permanently retire. In addition, we printed a, a lot of money. The money supply, M2, since the beginning of 2020 has increased by about 40%. That's a tremendous increase over two years. Uh, the money supply in 2021 alone is on track to increase by about 14 15%. This is M2, most commonly preferred definition to the extent mainstream economists even talk about the money supply anymore that that's on line with years in the 1970s, if not a little bit greater. This is different than in 2008 when bank reserves dramatically increased, but the money supply increase didn't really occur because the Fed was paying interest on excess reserves. But you're seeing now money supply has been increasing. People have been spending it. Businesses have been spending it. Their PPP loans, consumer stimulus checks, et cetera. Demand is outstripping supply. That's causing shortages, and those shortages are leading to price increases. So the reason why prices are going up is simple. It's because of the government.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, (laughs) that's what it always is. But libertarians always get uh, blamed. They say that we always blame everything on the government. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, there has to be something that the greedy capitalists have been doing, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: Um that's what people would have us believe regarding meat prices. I saw a great meme on Twitter recently where someone had a picture of the percentage change in meat prices from the 70s and whenever the prices were going up, they had this label that says greedy greedy capitalists and then when the prices were falling, it said altruistic capitalists, right? And uh, you know, it's not as if the pandemic has made Businesses any greedier now? Has the pandemic caused a lot of small businesses to fail, which has increased consolidation, uh, has encouraged more people to shop online, which has given stores such as Amazon more market power. Absolutely, uh, the you know the 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 COVID lockdowns have had a you know cartelist component, you know that creates sort of mini cartels, but it's it's the government policies that have been uh, restricting the supply, uh, you know, of, of various goods. Uh, especially labor, and it's the government that's been increasing the money supply tremendously in encouraging people to spend it through stimulus checks, through uh, loans to businesses, even the, the you know the, the, the government itself. So you're, you're seeing a lot of pressures building up that's causing prices to go up. And a lot of economists did not think this is going to happen. I remember very early on in April, when that was really the first month you started to see CPI increases go up, that was like, whoa, okay, something's going on here. Analysts had predicted a monthly increase of 0.2, in April it turned out to be uh, 0.8, right? So this information was coming out in May, showing that something uh, odd was going on. People said, oh, this will be over by the end of the summer inflation rates did decline. The monthly increases did start to decrease at a, you know, increase at a slower rate in August, but then prices started to increase again. And it's not just in things such as used cars and, uh, other, uh, you know, goods related to the reopening of the economy. The prices are becoming price increases are becoming more broad based. They're spreading out. Uh, food prices are going up. Energy prices are going up. Rents are going up core inflation, which is uh, increases minus food and energy to sort of, it's their way of reducing the inflation rate. They're saying, oh, those are volatile. But that that's up to about 5%, which is historically huge. So the, you can't deny that price increases have occurred. The government is still playing sort of a retreating battle by saying, oh, it's just due, it's going to be temporary, et cetera. But it's increasingly looking less likely, especially now that at least the Fed has stated that they're going to begin to engage in some sort of contractionary monetary policy. How credible that is, I don't know. (laughs) You got anything, Scott?
1: Uh, Yeah, so that was going to be my question, was the big headline was that Chairman Powell has said, oh no, man, you guys are right, and now it's time to start raising interest rates. And they already said they were going to taper off their asset purchasing program and all of that, but now they're going to taper it faster and raise interest rates sooner. So the question is, I guess, judging from what you just said, do you believe that at all? Or <laughs> in other words, uh, like how bad of a crash are we facing? Because as Rothbard teaches, they always try to prick the bubble and let the air out slowly. But that doesn't work. It pops, it crashes, and there's going to be hell to pay. And I guess what I really want to know is, is the housing market going to crash soon so I could buy a house after that? because <laughs> right now the price of a house in Austin, Texas has gone up by $150,000 in the last year.
0: So you talk about I, price living,
1: inflation, how about in, in that specific sector? It's completely out of control.
2: Yeah, I will. I mean, don't complain to me. I live in Tampa. That's another area that the real estate has been soaring. Now, I was lucky. I had to pay, I renewed my rent contract in March of last year. So I got in right before rent mm-hmm. started to go up. Now, the way they, they actually calculate housing price increases in the CPI is absolutely ridiculous. That's a side note. They literally bake it in. They, they delay it by several months. It's known as something owner equivalent rent. So they ask people who own homes, how much they think they could rent their house for. And that's always been a trick they've done, which is delayed increases in rent to show up in the CPI. We're starting to see that now, even though home prices have increased for the past year, it's only recently really rents are starting to go up. But regarding the Federal Reserve's at least announcement to engage in contractionary monetary policy, it's a tricky subject because I think, and this is, this is definitely an Austrian point, it's also been made by other free market economists, there's a strong tendency for what's known as a political business cycle because the, everything right now, why Republicans are bringing up inflation so much, why Democrats are trying to say it's going to go down next year, et cetera, all revolves around the midterms. The Democrats have a very thin majority in the House. They have an extremely um, thin majority in the Senate, right? They basically have to have a tiebreaker by the vice president and all the Democrats vote on bills. Biden really wants the economy to do good in, uh, no, be, be, good, be doing good in October, November of 2022. Richard Nixon was in the same position when he was looking for reelection. He forced Arthur Burns. To basically increase the money supply, juice up the economy before the election. Uh, he put in price controls to try and tamp down on inflation. And then after that, after he won election, then he removed the price controls, money supply kept increasing. Then you start to see the stagflation of the seventies develop. Powell is at least up for reappointment in early 22. He wants to keep his boss happy. Biden has the ability to appoint many more people to the Board of Governors. Janet Yellen, a former Fed chair, is now Secretary of the Treasury. This is something we haven't seen happen since except for a very brief time. it was in the it was in the late 70s under Carter. again, the era of stagflation. So I think the Fed right now, they they're still committed to their strategy of um, re, you know keep on printing the money, keep 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 the bubble going at least until 2022. I could only see the Fed actually start doing engaging meaningful policy. Inflation continues to be a problem or the federal or the, you know, the government Biden, they start using the Fed as a punching bag. But even the, the announcement to, you know, recently about the Fed engaging in tractionary monetary policy, you have to kind of digest it for a little bit because what Powell is really saying in the Fed speak is saying, all right, we've been making excess purchases of about 120 billion a month. In various government securities, in mortgage securities, and in some other things, we're going to we're going to speed up our you know deceleration. We're gonna we're gonna speed up us retiring, you know, winding down those purchases. So they're not even going to engage in contractionary monetary policy until about the spring of next year. It's just well we're, they're just gonna engage in less expansionary monetary policy, and then they said they're going to raise rates three times, three increases penciled in in 2022. Okay. Maybe. Well, one of those is definitely going to be after the election. I, I can absolutely guarantee you that. So that one doesn't even mm. really count. And the other thing is we, we've played this game before in the mid-2010s. The Fed was constantly saying they were going to raise rates and they never they, they they delayed increasing, et cetera. This is the boy who cried wolf. So mm. will Powell actually raise rates? I'm not sure. Inflation will have to continue to be bad for him to actually do anything meaningful. I, re- I think central banks are kind of committed to, to making the party go on a little bit longer, the Federal Reserve, especially because Biden wants the economy to be good for the elections in 22.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I was the Democrats, I'd take the hit now so that we're back on the upswing for 24 because the you know, this is a worse bubble than under Obama. It's it's much, much steeper, much higher, much quicker than the post 2008 bubble, isn't it?
2: Yeah. So this is one where you're actually starting to see the the inflation. I think what their game plan is if, if the, the for me to honestly think is that they're hoping that, okay, if the Fed has to get, if there's actually a bubble and they're going to engage a contractionary monetary policy, they want to do it after the election because then they'll have strength in their control, or at least they're going to hope to strengthen their control of Congress. So then they can pass various fiscal bills, whatever. This could come about through their, them pushing for new voting laws. Um, you know, that, that's, that's something that's being brought up again, because Biden's having a hard time passing, getting his build back, uh, better policies passed, you know, that, that, that program, um, you always want to postpone it. So this is, it's, it's, it's an interesting issue because this really, even before, like the, before the housing crisis burst, you know, the classic Ron Paul, 2007, 2008, you know, inflation was going up, but it wasn't this bad. You're starting to see inflation get up. Uh, if you ask Federal Reserve officials what they thought, and if this was in February of 2021, and you asked them what they thought inflation would look like in November of 2021, none of them would have said 7%, which it basically is at. It's at 6.8%, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's going up to 7 you know, it's, it's basically 7%. This has come as a surprise, and it's really upset a lot of people because wages have not kept kept pace. Right, the, the the administration keeps touting wage growth, wage growth, wage growth. Oh, wages are up by about you know four point five percent, five percent. But then still means workers are poor because prices have gone up even more. And you're starting to see workers start to uh, develop inflationary expectations, which means they're starting to see through the bubble. So this is going to the point where Mises sort of alludes to almost like a crack up boom. Am I saying it's going to get that bad? You know, in the near-term future, not yet, but we're—I think we could be in for an inflationary ride.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, one more thing before I turn it back over to you, Pete. I wanted to ask you about this. Was, um, you know, there's been all these uh, union strikes and so forth lately about not just not that their wages are uh, not high enough, but also working conditions. I saw one yesterday where it's Baskin Robbins, and they're complaining that. You know their quota is seventy cakes a minute, or whatever they're supposed to do on the assembly line—some insane thing—and these women are saying that this is just crazy. And I was wondering whether, um, you know, it just occurred to me that this is maybe similar to shrinkflation, right? Where, like, instead of a twenty-ounce bottle of Dr. Pepper, now it's a sixteen-ounce bottle because they just make it smaller rather than raise the price, because. If you're the company, you got to find a way to split the difference kind of so the price shock to the customer isn't too much that you turn them away when there's all this upward pressure on prices. And then I wonder so if that's kind of the same thing too the way these factory workers are getting squeezed is in a sense a shrinkflation kind of a thing where the the need to make more money per hour for the company has gone up so much that they've got to increase production to make up for it in a way without compensating in terms of wages or hiring new employees to take some of the pressure off. And so then you have the working stiff on the assembly line ends up getting the shaft there and, I don't know. It's a theoretical thing. I just want to probably there's already a study at Mises about this or something, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's definitely shrinkflation's important. Murray Rothbard sp- spoke about it briefly in "What Has Government Done to Our Money." I teach my students about this the whole time. You know, the classic popsicle. Uh, there's more air in the in the popsicle bag or in the potato chip bag, etc. I do think you are seeing some of that now, and uh, you can be seeing some of that in factories or just restaurants. You see clearly when I, I saw it a lot in the summer, I still see it occasionally. You go to a restaurant and there are not enough waitresses, right, to, to bus tables. So there's some empty tables and that means you have to wait more. That was a problem, uh, particularly when there were unemployment benefits, but you can still see it. Not everything in the production process is right. There's still workers sitting out of the labor force. That's causing existing workers to have to work harder. Okay, businesses they're also under uh, increased compliance costs, potentially having to deal with vaccines and just the whole face mask and lockdown stuff from before. But I know the vaccine requirements uh, are becoming, um, uh, you know, an, an issue with testing and, and so on. And and yeah, you're seeing there, there's this. The, the demand for goods is going up more, and its supply is still being constrained, or at least it's not—it's not keeping up. And yeah, that, that's showing up. Uh, workers' wages are going down, partially through poorer work conditions, right? Or over just as economists talk about? It's not just the money wage; it's the overall wage, which includes fringe benefits, you know, leisure time perks of the office, et cetera. And so this is one of the ways that workers are getting uh, screwed by inflation. And compared to the beginning of the year when economists were so optimistic, mainstream economists were so optimistic, he said, the vaccine's coming out. Everyone's gonna go shop again. Biden passed this new stimulus check. Blah, 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 blah. The economy's gonna come roaring back. That's what we heard. Second quarter GDP, kind of a disappointment. Third quarter, real disappointment this quarter now it's clear inflation's become a problem etc it it's it's squeezing a lot of people and so it's absolutely one of the ways inflation is taking for shape is through that shrinkflation that you were describing
0: hmm. is there anything we can look at in his, in american history that compares to what we're what we're going through right now
2: that's a good question interestingly enough paul krugman uh, who's not exactly my favorite economist, but I do I do read him, you know, because I'm interested in his opinion. Argues that the this inflation is very similar to the period after World War II. So the Krug, Krugman's ar- argument is that well, it's a bunch of pent up demand. People are there's just a supply and demand imbalance that's going to go back to normal, um, and then everything will be fine. I think he, uh, you know, inflation did increase. For a little bit longer than what he says, it went down after immediately after World War II, but then it, it went back up uh, by the end of the decade around the Korean War. Part of that was because, again, the, the Federal Reserve was uh, basically lost control of its monetary policy. The government wanted it to print a bunch of money, and this was causing pressure on the price system.
1: Uh,
2: I, I think potentially uh, right now, this sort of reminds me a lot of what happened actually a, a hundred years ago right? Uh, I've written a paper on the depression of 1920 to 1921. This is a, 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 a historical episode. Ron Paul talks a lot about, you know, this is how free market capitalism, you know, can correct recessions and all of that. I agree with all that 1,001%. Um, but before you did see this, this short little boom, this short, sharp inflationary boom. And we potentially could have, you know, like as, as uh, Scott talks about, like if the bubble crashes, let's say the Fed does raise rates, crashes the bubble or something happens with China, China's economy is struggling with the Evergrande uh, debt crisis and in, in its real estate market that could, you know, they could be the epicenter of the crash, just like we were the epicenter 13 years ago Th- that, uh, you could, you could see something very similar to what basically happened a hundred years ago, maybe only just by like a three year lag. So instead of the depression of nineteen twenty to twenty one, you could have the depression of you know nineteen twenty two to you know whenever. But I, that to me, I I see that as um, uh, the, the the most at least right now the most similar episode. If the inflation continues and the Federal Reserve continues to print money, not just in twenty twenty two but in twenty twenty three, et cetera, then it's looking more and more like the stagflation of the nineteen seventies.
0: Do you think it makes sense for housing to be so high right now, considering everything that's going on? Um, Part of that is, I think there's undeniably been
2: relative shifts that have been going on. More people are moving to certain areas. Florida and Texas are experiencing enormous booms because their economies are... Sorry, Patrick. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah I know i mean well i, I look it, it's i i really enjoy living in Florida so if this is the price I have to pay then uh you know i'll I'll take it
0: um you just just shoot at people you when you see a new york license plate just you know take yeah, your tires yeah, out. yeah you know,
2: exactly California exactly
1: idea, man I, I'm, I''m
2: I'm still waiting for my independent republic of Florida like i'm gonna have my desantis bucks you know and like all <laughs> i'll be using that
1: because i lived in California for a little while but yeah. I don't deserve this though
2: Yeah, yeah, but so part of part of the housing price uh, crisis—I mean, not crisis—the housing um, um, increase is due to relative shifts. People are moving out of cities. People are moving down south. A lot of it is also production is constrained. Um, You're seeing this uh, very high prices for resources. Lumber, lumber was one of those uh, prices—the prices prices of, of goods early in 2021 that shot up and then it went down again a little bit. So people said, "Oh, this is the transitory." Phenomenon, but it's been back up recently. Biden hasn't made that better. I think there's been a tariff on Canadian lumber uh, recently instituted, etc. So this is uh, that the, the housing prices are going up a lot. More people are 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 moving into houses. That's driving up prices, and you're starting to see, I believe, people taking out loans, etc., to build houses. But it's, houses are constrained by production, and demand for them is 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 really increasing. So I think. Part of the shift in Florida in Texas is a relative shift outside of monetary changes, but undoubtedly a large part of it is due to the, uh, the government policies of, you know, lockdown production constraints, monetary stimulus, so on.
1: Yeah. Well, and look, part of the competition for single family homes now, which is a brand new phenomenon is giant wall street hedge funds coming in with all this free money that they get, you know, from the fed and their reserve ratios or whatever, where They're buying up hundreds of single family homes at a time to rent entire neighborhoods and then competing with typically your only other competition to buy a home is other single families. And so uh, that's, you know, put all this extra pressure on. And so that's partially because the artificial, the interest rates are so low that real estate's one of the only things that you can really invest in and make a lot of money on. And so, you know, they're being essentially pushed into that by the you know, artificially um, connoitered policy by the Federal Reserve. Yeah, absolutely. Ruin regular people.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Something a lot you don't even hear about too much is that, so interest rates are really low, as you mentioned. Those are just the nominal interest rates. Once you factor in the fact that you've had inflation, now you're getting negative real interest rates. Right? So it's a huge incentive to borrow. It's a huge uh, d- incentive to try and move into riskier assets, et cetera, so on and so forth. So it's, it's, it's very distortionary. And it's unfortunate that we're starting to see a uh, potential housing problem emerge. It's definitely emerged in other uh, parts of the world, particularly China. I have very low expectations that the government will, the governments will, <laughs> will, succeed, will deal with it in the proper way. Um, this is it, it, it's, it's certainly problematic. I will, I will say that. And on top of what makes it worse, even before the house inflation's much higher than it was before. And it's very broad based. And that is, that's, that's uh, regular people are hurting in, in more ways than one. These past two years have been very tough. GDP fell by you know i think it was like 3.5% in the united states that was a huge hit now you've got this inflation people are this is this has been two years of 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 relative of, of two years of
0: absolute stagnation uh, one could go so far to argue you may, um let's talk a little bit about new york city um <laughs> When you look at what's happened, I mean, you're from Jersey, right? Originally, uh, I'm, I'm from New Jersey. My brother lives in the city. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so if he lives in the city, he's working in the city. What's he saying about the city? I mean, I mean, in New York City, I think basically like all of New York State has like the same GDP as like Russia. So yeah. New York City must have like a G- like 75 to 80 percent of that. And what's happening to New York City? I mean, where? I mean, literally that where so many of us are have our like 401ks and things invested in the um in the stock market. Some of some people are taking it out and putting it into cryptocurrency, which is probably the smartest move you can do right now. Um, But yeah, if, how goes New York City? How goes the markets?
2: Yeah, New York City, There, there's definitely a shift. COVID caused a lot of people to move out of the city. I know, at least in Tampa, I increasingly see more and more people from New York State in New York city, people are moving out earlier in the year. There was the, um, I think Miami and places in Florida were almost sort of tempting businesses to move or, you know, financial centers, et cetera, to, to move. You're seeing now, that's why you're seeing a lot of progressives, um, push for eliminating the, the uh, restoring, excuse me, the salt deduction, the this uh you know we're, we're limiting state you know we're allowing you to you to write off your um you, the, the high state and local taxes you pay right because they realize they're they're losing uh citizens a lot of citizens are getting fed up crimes rising in New, in in New York City and other in other cities the cost of living's a problem you you now have va- vaccination uh, you know just just issues New York City's recently gone into sort of like a mini little lockdown again um, I, I think it's becoming less attractive, which is why you're seeing progressives in the new, in New York state, as well as California, et cetera. In many ways, they're trying to cut out their competition, right? Of the, the more lower tax freer States like Texas and Florida by one spreading some of their citizens there, but then pushing to, uh, have, have various regulations extended there, et cetera, to make those relatively less attractive. It's the exact same thing we see with the corporate income tax. Uh, Biden is pushing for higher corporate income taxes around the world because he wants to raise our corporate income tax. So he doesn't want us to become less competitive around the world. New York is doing a similar thing, or at least pushing for a similar thing. This could be, I think, the beginning of at least... That city used to be one of the most elite cities in the United States, if not the most, you know, D.C., New York City, San Francisco, L.A. Slowly but surely, I think other cities in Texas... Uh, Florida, et cetera, are kind of gaining ground, and I'm interested to see what New York City will will look like in a decade. It could come back, but it also could not.
0: Got anything, Scott?
1: Well, yeah, I'm really interested in that. I mean, I guess even in New York, I'm predicting, you know, in relative terms, a swing to the right and an end to this regime at some point. And the American people, even New Yorkers, saying enough is enough, and then boy, I mean, to think of that megalopolis being even partially empty and needing to be refilled again when circumstances return to, um, you know, something more decent. I mean, that's a, a hell of a boom coming there because, and you know what? I've only been to New York city twice and one of them was recently. And I went up in the, uh, what you call it, uh, Empire State Building and looked at. And I was pretty impressed. I know you guys spent a lot of time there and aren't that impressed anymore. (laughs) But that thing is, it's pretty impressive. It's it's pretty hard to imagine it slowing all the way down to a stop in any way. You know what I mean? Um, But but I guess as bad as the Democrats can can make it, it still just has to amount to potential for the future to swing back again because it's all still there, you know? can't get rid of it even even with the worst depression what's been literally created out of brick and steel will remain
2: yeah it, it 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 um you could see a move i mean i think you know up upstate new york is definitely getting restless new jersey came very close to electing a republican governor it it fell short right so you weren't able to see a repeat of what happened uh, during the beginning of Obama, the, during Obama's first term, when both the Virginia governorship and the New Jersey governorship, uh, basically the, the Republicans captured those. They were at a slightly different times, I believe, but it did become close enough and it wasn't seen to be a competitive race. The demographics have, have, have turned against the Republicans, at least in certain areas, but yeah, p- potentially though, I think New York City is just so progressive that you're not really going to see any Substantive. I don't know. I, I would love to be wrong, and I would love for you to be right. I, I just, I, I know New Yorkers, and um, they, <laughs> uh, bad habits die hard.
1: <laughs> yeah. I guess. But I mean, I what isn't say. at the bottom line though? Isn't the point of that city business? I mean, this is the economic capital of the world empire. Yeah. So. Like, damn, man. Yeah, it, I think that <laughs> I think it it was
2: business now. It's about being woke, business
1: liberal, <laughs>
2: yeah, or be performatively liberal, being the woke capitalist, capitalism, oh, well, being a culture yeah. center. Uh, and yeah, it's it's it, you you know, know, it,
1: it says at the end of the day, the bottom line is what really counts. You know, the color of that ink on the page. We'll see yeah. how well being woke pays when it means essentially not doing business anymore. Yeah, yeah, in their house. Yeah, that's crazy. And hey, let listen, me, let's spend some time <laughs> talking about the book, can we? Yeah, we absolutely. Go or what? Yeah.
0: yeah, um, oh. we'll talk a little bit about, like, um, I mean, really, I think when I first talked to you about this book, which was like almost a year ago, <laughs> we, um, yeah. you, you said that this was almost like a part six of, like, Conceived in Liberty. Didn't you have yeah. that in your head? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So I said, oh, Conceived in Liberty, part six. I wanted to. Like, the first part of the book is the shortest. It really kind of goes through a summary of Rothbard's five volumes. It sort of gets into more stuff at the end in chapter three. But, yeah, it really does continue the story that Rothbard uh, planned to write. So I really did write it within the – the vein of being a Rothbardian talking about the Jeffersonians and the Jacksonians and the way Murray Rothbard described them as being hardcore libertarians bent on fighting uh, cronyism and reforming the system, et cetera. So this, um, if you're interested in the conceived in Liberty series, I absolutely recommend you to, uh, to, 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 you know, to, 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 at least take a look at the book. Um, it goes through a lot of sort of hidden stories about corruption and, you know, people who, um, you know we're engaged in special interest deals and just the overall battle between mass movement libertarian forces and statism so that's my little book club uh book plug uh, i hope uh, I hope people you know take take a look at it
0: and uh, and buy it yeah I remember the f- the first interview we did on it you you had said I had asked the question so how soon after the constitution mm-hmm. was the um did, did they just go after it and just absolutely start destroying it? You're like, I think you came up with something that was like eight, like twelve months to eighteen months after, <laughs> after ratification, or basically, after,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. I would argue the Constitution itself was actually a big government document. The the strict yeah. constructionist view came from the former fighters of the Constitution, the anti federalists. Um, in through the Kentucky in Virginia resolutions of Thomas Jefferson, James Madison. I'm not a huge fan of his Virginia resolutions. That's a story uh, for, for another time, but yeah, it really, uh, it was right from the get go. So it's like, and when I, can have Republic- you and Tom,
0: I can have you and Tom Woods on to, to debate that. I,
2: I would love to. I'm, <laughs> I'm totally in favor of that. I, uh, so uh, that's all I'll say. I, I don't know if he will be, but uh, yeah, I, I, would love to do that. I, I think it's, it's definitely a story Uh, I I actually debated Mark Skousen about this uh, in Freedom Fest this this year. So we had to speak about Rothbard's Conceived in Liberty and the Constitution. And Mark Skousen was one of the debaters. He um, was not a fan of Rothbard's Conceived in Liberty series. One of his biggest gripes is that Rothbard is very anti-Benjamin Franklin. And I believe Mark Skousen is a obviously a distant descendant of Benjamin Franklin. So uh, <laughs> he likes to dress up as him at Freedom Fest. I mean, he's a very nice guy and everything. But so anyway, you can see that he's very, very defensive about Benjamin Franklin. And anyway, so we, we had to go through this debate and back and forth and, you know, the argument that, oh, well, the constitution has still provided the best government, the best economy in the world, you know, the Amer- America, etc. My response is that, well, that's from the strict constructionist view, which came after like the, the Federalists nearly, brought us to like a quasi monarchy under uh, what I like to call prime minister Alexander Hamilton. But yeah, so right from the get go, basically, uh, that's when the Republic got corrupted, so to speak. So (laughs) um, if you're, if people are, if you're interested in that early American history, I absolutely uh, recommend um, you, you know, you take a look at both conceived in Liberty and cronyism.
1: You're muted, Scott. I hate it when I do that. Thanks for coming on. I'm really sorry I called you Jonathan earlier. I got you mixed up because you got the same last name as some other guy on Twitter. I don't know. This yeah. confuses me. I'm an old fuddy duddy. Um, <laughs> oh. Well, yeah. Newman, thanks. cronyism in America: Liberty and power. Liberty versus power in America, 1607 to 1849. I'm sorry. Say again. Hard-come oh no! Thank. Th- th- yeah. <laughs> Thank, thank, thanks a lot. Yeah. Jonathan, he's,
2: he's also, a, um, um, he's, a, he's, a um, affiliated with the Mises Institute. So we have the same last name. We're not actual brothers though. we treat ourselves as if we're, we're brothers in economics basically. So okay, great. it's all good. Well, you thanks for me
1: mixing you up. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Of course not. <laughs> yeah. So you like, I hate that guy. He always does <laughs> that to me, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for
2: having me on. And, uh, thanks for promoting my book. Happy to talk about inflation. So thanks. Yeah, cool. Thank
1: that Patrick. was fun. All right, Pete, see you in two weeks, man. Happy holidays, everybody. Take
0: care, y'all. Happy Christmas. Happy New
1: Year.